Hey guys, my name is Ben Berman and welcome to the Starting It Up podcast where I interview all types of entrepreneurs uncovering actionable steps and inspiration that you can use to build your business, your side hustle, whatever it is that you're trying to create and live the life you've always wanted. Hey guys, we're back with another episode. Today we're talking with Ryan Croft, who is a former professional baseball scout and adventure tourism guide turned technology entrepreneur. He's currently the co-founder and COO of Transit Screen, a B2B software that provides real-time mobility curated for specific locations. Ryan learned about the transportation issues that plague cities from his time traveling the world, and he wanted to create a product that will make it easier for people to get around. Transit Screen is currently live in 60 cities throughout six countries with plans to continue rapidly expanding. We talk about what Ryan learned from his adventures that led him to found this company, how Transit Screen is making it easier for us to get around, why he decided to make this a business-to-business product instead of going directly to the consumer, and what the future of transportation looks like in our cities. Hope you guys enjoy it. Here it goes. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Today we have on Ryan Croft, who is the uh, co-founder and COO of Transit Screen. Uh, Transit Screen uh, provides a suite of transportation, real estate information, and analytical products. Uh, the main one being a, a software as a service SaaS technology, which powers uh, live information screens uh, in different buildings and and environments. I'm going to hand it over to you, Ryan. Talk a little bit about what Transit the screen is and how you got uh, involved in in uh, this company yeah first off Ben thank you for having me um, really appreciate it so uh, transit screen we're a Washington DC based software company as you mentioned our subscription service so it's SaaS model um, we started in uh, Arlington Virginia actually as a government spin out of a place called the mobility lab in around 2013, uh, it was a grant-funded project through Arlington County Commuter Services. Um, and during that year of 2013, I met my co-founder, Matt Kaywood. Um, we're very different people, I would say. Uh, he is a computational neuroscientist, a PhD neuroscientist uh, from UCSF. He went to Harvard and got a computer science degree in undergrad. Uh, I have a completely different background. Mine's more in software startups and travel. So I used to have a travel company and I led trips all over the world for five or six years, got to see the world, primarily Latin America, the Caribbean, but also Europe and some of the Middle East. And I think through my journeys, uh, I recognize this is more like adventure travel and surfing and scuba diving and wine tasting. Mm-hmm. Through this journey, I recognize that cities primarily are complex places and they're confusing. So Matt and I met and he was in the process of spinning out this government program and we decided to go into business together. We thought there was a business use case. So 2014 is when we really started and bootstrapped, uh, hired our first employee in 2015 and raised a little bit of capital. And at that point, we knew this is a business that could scale. Um, and, and that's pretty much the founding story. Awesome. Yeah. So, so that's all you know, super interesting. And I was looking at your bio and that's something I, I definitely wanted to, to, to talk about. So I know that, you know, you were actually, in addition to uh, having your own travel company, you were actually uh, an independent baseball scout. 
um, meaning that you were, you know, scouting and training uh, prospects from from the Dominican Republic, and then arranging them to meet with MLB teams. I'm just, you know, looking at the rest of your bio, and I'm wondering how did that come about, and then from there, I'm guessing, you know, that kind of experience, um, you know, led you to then starting the travel company. Um, just talk a little bit about like why you did that. What what is it about? Um, you know, those two things that, that was so interesting to you and, and what did you, um, just like, it's, it's not, you know, a very traditional path. Um, so I'm just wondering like how that came about. Yeah, definitely being a scout in the Dominican Republic at 22 is is not (laughs) traditional. Um, I moved down there right after college, really to volunteer at an orphanage and speak and teach English, uh, to young kids. And that was a really transformative experience. Uh, while I was down there in the first month, I actually got uh, contracted dengue fever. So I was in the hospital for seven days. Oh my! Uh, that oh, was definitely shit. an eye-opening experience to be in the Dominican hospital. But basically, uh, when I was living in the Dominican Republic, uh, fantastic experience. Learned how to surf, learned how to scuba dive, um, practiced my Spanish. But above all else, I kind of fell in love with the game of baseball down there. It's a passion. It's sort of like soccer in Brazil or uh, some other national passion. It's a national sport. Um, and I got pretty into the whole concept that, you know, 10 or 20% of the major leagues is really made up of Dominican players. So I got curious and I used to go out to the, the private uh, baseball academies and meet the coaches and players and scouts. And I just threw my hat in the ring and I started to find players that they found me and I would drive them and prepare them to go to uh, training facilities to try out for professional baseball contracts. And I did that for well over a year, almost two years. Um, really interesting experience. I will say I was one of the only non-Dominicans uh, really in the business, but uh, I got pretty close and a few players that I had represented actually went on to, to play at least in the minor leagues and some close to the majors. Um, in that process, I it was almost like you're touring around different baseball academies around the country. Every major league baseball team had at the time um, an academy. So it's sort of their sort of like a spring training, but in the Dominican where they cultivate and, and prospect some of the best new talent, the Sammy Sosa's and Pedro Martinez's of yeah. the world. So in that process, I got to meet a lot of different people and explore the whole country and I had, you know, well over 100 friends and family come to visit the Dominican because they said, wait, my friend or, you know, brothers or my son is living in the Dominican Republic. I'd love to go down and visit. So I got pretty good at showing people a local's perspective. And that really informed my travel company days of I wanted to travel in a way that I knew other people also wanted to travel. So I would create these experiences of people who maybe they work for a solar company in San Francisco. So they went down off the grid to Nicaragua stayed in an eco resort and uh did yoga um you know it's kind of a getaway i was sounds great crafting these specific experiences wow that's awesome yeah and and that's actually interesting because i was um just a couple of days ago i was actually looking online for like different kind of like adventure like travel places i was actually <laughs> checking out like uh trips to antarctica um just to see what that would be like but wow. yeah yeah i mean i don't i don't know how soon that's gonna happen but you know, I, I went on one travel tour to, to New Zealand for a week and it was, it was great. So, um, definitely want to do more of that kind of stuff. And it's just awesome that, you know, you're able to, you know, do that as a job and, and, and like have other people, um, you know, just pay you to, to kind of take them around. That's great. So, 
you know, moving a little bit back to, to transit screen, um, I, I, I definitely want to understand this business a little better. Um, can you kind of dive a little bit more and explain exactly how it works and what is the exact problem that, that you're solving with this? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll take you back to the original sort of problem that we're solving. So the government program that we spun out of looked at the city today and any city seems to be growing if you look at the macro trends. And in that growth, you're noticing that there's a lot of <clears throat> urban development, urban infill. So real estate companies are looking for locations that they can go vertical and that creates density and density creates traffic. So what are ways that we can alleviate traffic in our growing cities um, and not build more parking? That's the number one concern that we're trying to solve for. Yeah. And, and why is that? In by that the way? process, uh, because cars create traffic and it's not just cars themselves, but it's the number of trips and the length of trips. Mm -hmm. So if you can slowly start to chip away at the number of trips that individuals take and the length of their trip, maybe their commute or drive to the grocery store or driving to pick up their kids, you can then start to chip away at traffic. But I don't know of a city that I've landed in in the last 20 years that has not had traffic as a problem yeah. or not a single mayor that you talk to who doesn't cite traffic as one of the main things that they're trying to alleviate in their city. It, it's bad for public health. It's bad for uh, the environment and it's bad for productivity and the economy. So I think by and large, there's not many people you'll find that want to increase traffic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So that said, Transit Screen at its core was really trying to solve the problem of there's a lot of infrastructure out there. There's buses, there's trains, there's ferries, there's streetcars, there's private shuttles, there's bike share, there's Uber, there's Lyft. But really, there's no central way for people to access this information all the time in one single portal. So our theory was there's a lot of information, but it's not really curated or it's not provided in a time when you need to make a decision. So we created transit screen to put it in lobbies of buildings uh, so people can make that choice either if you have a smartphone or not, if you're banked or unbanked, if you're from the U.S. or if you're not. So that core thesis, I think, has only strengthened uh, over the last five years that we've been in business. The only thing has changed is who we sell to. So originally, we just assumed coming out of a government program that we were a government technology. Found out very quickly, although we did get our first contract with uh, DDOT in Washington, D.C., MW COG, which is kind of the sort of the governing body over transportation of the region, and then the city and county of San Francisco. So our first customers were actually cities and, and government. But we recognized quickly that the sales cycle is very difficult and procurement stuff and the, 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 the length of time to close a deal is just really not conducive to a startup environment, high growth environment. So we recognized very early on that the real estate industry as an incentive and they have the capital to pay for the technology that we're selling to them. So we're, we've really become a real estate tech company. And if you follow this sort of Amazon HQ2 search at all, you might've heard that there's a, a firm in Washington called JBG Smith, um, a recently publicly traded company that uh, won Amazon and the whole process to get them to come to Crystal City or National Landing. JBG Smith was our first true real estate customer and I think it informed us how a real estate customer thinks and how we can sell to someone who owns and operates a large real estate asset. Okay, wow. So, th so that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I definitely did follow the uh, HQ2 thing. I'm, I'm out here in, in Queens, New York. So 
Um, <laughs> definitely heard a lot about that. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, oh, what, of course. yeah. <laughs> so, so interesting. I think, um, so I, I, I guess for something like this, when someone looks at it from the outside, they would assume that this would be, you know, a, a, a company that goes directly to the consumer. Um, I, I want to like, just better understand, you know, what made you think that, and, and most people, you know, do this, they put out an app and, and they just put it out there in the world and try to get as many people on it as possible. What did, what made you think that incorporating this into, into buildings, into, into like central hubs would work better than putting this just in the hands of everyday people? I know that, you know, you do have an app out right now, but you know, your customer is, is still other businesses. Um, just can you elaborate on that? And, and what do you think about, you know, the difference between going directly to the consumer for something like this or, or just going to a business and then having, um, the actual end user use it from, from that point? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that, you know, I, I get this question a lot and I think it's, it's well-grounded because people just assume that the easiest way to market would be create an app that consumers anywhere can download and use and it's free. And then there's some other monetization strategy for us. We've just always been built as a B2B company. So it's really everything we know. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do business. You could, get a lot of users and then find a way to monetize it later uh, and raise a lot of venture capital. I think we didn't have that luxury to raise a lot of capital early on. We had to find ways that we could generate revenue to sustain the business. So uh, almost by necessity, we created a B2B product suite and said, we have to know who our customer is. We have to solve a problem. And every single month when they renew or every year when they renew, if we don't deliver, we could go out of business. So I think it was a, a financial imperative that we had to find a path to monetization maybe faster than other companies do. And, you know, in the end, um, time will tell whether the B2C model or B2B model is the winner. But, you know, we're, we're pretty happy with the market that we're going after. And we're pretty happy with the sort of customer base that we've been able to amass at this point. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and it, you know, when you do something that uh, is kind of against like common knowledge, it's, it, it can't, it's always in a way an advantage just because less people are doing it. So, uh, you know, that definitely makes sense. And, and also SaaS is just so scalable and, you know, just re it's easier to get repeat revenue um, for the most part from a business than it is from, from a consumer. Uh, just because they're always kind of like on the lookout to cancel subscriptions and things like that um, to try to save money. I agree. Yeah. Um, so definitely agree. So that's yeah, that's a super interesting path you took. And just to to make sure that you know myself and like the the rest of the audience are are totally getting the exact value proposition for a real estate company. So say you know a, a big um, you know real estate developer puts you in one of their you know giant units, right? Um, giant apartments or, or office buildings, can they tie that to like a direct ROI? Meaning, you know, if they put transit screen in their location, are they able to then, you know, track um, some kind of benefit from it? Or is it more of like an additional perk um, that like the people in that, in that building just like to, to see? Yeah, I think you have to think of the, the psyche of a real estate developer. Oftentimes, if you're going to build something in a rural environment, you know, you have a different incentive. But I think the push right now, and you're noticing the heaviest density and heaviest amount of development is in cities. So primarily the coastal cities, the 
Boston's in Seattle, San Francisco, New York, DC, Chicago. Not to say other cities aren't growing, but those are growing the fastest in my opinion. So in those cities today, a developer is paying a premium to be close to transit or to be close to the center of the city. And we felt at the time when we created this product, there was no visual way to convey the message of location. And the three most important words in real estate is location, location, location. Yeah. So how do you convey to someone who's going to buy uh, a lease or is going to purchase a lease for 12 months to rent an apartment or even bigger, someone who's going to pay a lease for 100,000 square feet for uh, an office space in a city, which could be millions of dollars. There's really no visual way for you to show them how well located this, this building is or their office or where they're going to live. And most importantly, in a leasing tour, either for office or for residential, there's no way to show people what their commute will be like if they lived or worked there. So really, I think, yes, it's an amenity in some ways, but also it's the only one of its kind that's comprehensive and says, imagine you lived in this apartment, this beautiful, beautiful apartment with all these great amenities. Your commute will be X because look at the transit screen and see all the options. And, you know, that could... It can make or break a deal potentially. So if they sign one lease over the course of that year, I think the ROI is there on on what we charge. Gotcha. Okay. So that so that definitely uh, clears everything up. So it's you know putting this tool into or just giving it to to a real estate developer or any company where where they have people leasing uh, or or buying space. It just you know makes it so much easier for them to to just tell everyone who's actually going to be using that, like, hey, here are your transportation options. Um, we make it easy, and it just slightly can increase the likelihood that someone will actually commit. And then, you know, if they commit on one of these giant places, it pays for this thing many times over. So so that definitely clears it up. And it also makes sense because, like, every time, you know, um, you know, if, if when I get a job, I'm always looking, you know, I go on Google Maps and I'm trying to find, you know, the best way to get there, like by train, you know, how can I get there if, if I have to go somewhere after work? Like, can I walk? Can I, you know, maybe just take a scooter or something? Um, and yeah, it is, it is like definitely something that everyone kind of does, but no one has thought about centralizing it yet. So, so that definitely, you know, uh, is, is super interesting. Um, and I know you said you're the first and, and or, or only of its kind. Um, why why is that so? I know that in a lot of subways, like especially in New York, there is that you know um, a, a, something that looks similar to a transit screen. It is the screen that has you know subway information and and sometimes like bus information. Why is it that you know nothing else has incorporated? just all transportation options? Is it something that's, you know, super technically difficult or is it something that you guys just are really ahead of and, and no one else is, uh, is thinking about? Yeah. So I guess I should clarify. So yes, real-time information in cities has existed and will exist and, and is growing, right? So if you're on a train platform, they have these things called passenger information displays, or mm -hmm. even in New York, there are some uh, sort of trip planning tools that you can go up to and interact with. Um, and even in, in air, airports, right, you have flight information displays, which has real-time information on your Lufthansa flight to Berlin is at gate B6, and it's departing soon. So we're not the first by any means, but we're the first to do it in a real estate environment and kind of bring it up above ground or into the home or into an apartment building or into an office building 
and really incorporate all modes of transportation. So I think there's a couple inherent uh, moats that we've been able to build. One, technically, yes, it seems it seems simple on the surface, but you know, every single day we're aggregating nearly 3,000 sources of data, of transportation data. And I wish I could tell you it was all the same and easy to work with, but the reality is it comes in a, a variety of formats. It's not always right. You have to clean it up and you have to normalize it for the information to be conveyed clearly on a screen. So that said, it's a larger lift technically than a lot of people would would anticipate. Secondly, we just reached a scale. We're in a, well over a thousand buildings today in a thousand locations. So we're the first to do it nationally and even internationally. So you know we do have displays in Toronto and Canada, across Canada, in the UK, in France, and in Ireland. And we're uh, getting ready to announce our, our first ever. Uh, deployment and project in Latin America. So that's pretty exciting. So yes, there are certainly other real-time information products on the market. They primarily serve government customers or transit agencies. We've taken the path of going and solving a, a transportation problem in the private sector in a B2B business model. Awesome. Awesome. So definitely makes sense. And, and it's, it's awesome that you guys are international. I didn't even realize, um, I guess that's like a different challenge, you know, uh, altogether, but I, I could be wrong just could because transportation systems are so different once you, uh, kind of, you know, go country to country. Um, but you know, now to, to move a little bit and, and talk about the future of transportation in general, you know, you mentioned that you have so many data points, um, about transportation uh, could you kind of speak a little bit about um, possibly like what do you see uh, from your perspective as the most popular and, and fastest growing mode of transportation? Just to because I'm trying to understand like, you know, uh, living in New York, especially you see that the subways are getting more crowded and more crowded and there isn't a lot of room. And I feel like there has to be um, another route, like a new transportation route or one that's less used today. That's going to be a lot you know, more frequently used in the future. Um, do you have like kind of any insight on that? Yeah, I'm actually very optimistic on the future of transportation. I personally look at um, some of the challenges that we see today as solvable, as long as we have the political will to make major changes. Uh, yes, I definitely think traditionally we built this country in the United States around an automobile. And it seems a little silly to move a 200 pound person in a 300 or 4,000, a three or 4,000 pound vehicle, a hunk of metal to go get a gallon of milk. So I think we need to right size the transportation for the use case. So if you're hauling wood that weighs thousands of pounds, using a truck is the right tool for that. But if you're just picking up something at the grocery store a mile away, maybe a scooter or a bicycle would be the better mode to take there. So. I look at other countries and try to gain inspiration from places like Hong Kong and Singapore and Copenhagen and Stockholm. And I was recently on a trip to Hong Kong and I was, I was blown away. 90% of the people that live in Hong Kong actually take mass transit every single day. Wow. And the challenge with the United States is 76% of people in the United States drive to work alone. So I think it's a Herculean task and it's not going to be easy, but trying to convince people and to enact behavior change on the ways that they commute, I think is one of the biggest opportunities of the next century. So how do you do it? I think first and foremost, it's, it's an economic incentive. So the more that we can make transit 
or walking or biking or taking anything other than a car more economically viable, the more likely people are going to do it. So if you get free parking at your work, you're likely going to drive. It's just more incentive to do so. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really bake in the overall societal cost of that free parking, which is traffic, which is time lost, which is the public health effects and the climate change effects. So overall, probably I think it takes two major players, I think, to make a difference. One, local jurisdictions, they need to unbundle parking. And basically that means uh, charge people the correct cost for parking, which might not be a very popular thing to say for people who own a car in New York or Boston or DC, but it's the right thing to do and make transit more affordable and easier to ride. So provide tools like transit screen, but like many other tools that are out there to make it an enjoyable, seamless experience. So you're not waiting for 25 minutes at a platform on the weekend in Washington, DC, or you're not waiting for an L train that's broken down (laughs) and is never coming. You have the information. There's multiple ways to get there. So if something's not working, have the information at your fingertips to make a decision. And my very last point is about employers. I think cities like Seattle, San Francisco, and Boston are doing a pretty good job at trying to get the largest employers in their cities to make a difference. So if you operate tech company X that has 40,000 or even just 10,000 employees in one city, if you incentivize those employees to not drive, you can actually make a very, very impactful, um, you can make an impact on a city because those people and the people that they live and work with will also see some of the repercussions of their decisions. So I think it just takes kind of a coordinated effort of policymakers and large employers and technology companies to come together and say, we have a problem. These are some of the strategies to solve it. And let's start to implement and work together. Gotcha. <laughs> it looks like you already had this whole thing planned out. So um, and that's great. And, and yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, it is, it, it is going to be difficult when you have multiple stakeholders, um, all, you know, with very strong opinions on this. I, I imagine like someone who drives every day doesn't want to be told that they can't drive or doesn't want to have their already probably like pretty expensive parking spot get any uh, more expensive. But, you know, it, it is a public policy issue that we kind of have to, to look at um, from a you know holistic level and and see like what makes you know the most sense long term and for and for the most amount of people um, and I I definitely think the incentivization uh, from people's employer is just to me that's like something that would you know have a very quick and almost like overnight effect because you know you think about any incentivization that employers have you know whether it's like you know health programs or or uh, pretty much anything. If if it makes sense financially, people tend to do it. Um, so it's definitely uh, something that you know I'm pretty hopeful about because I just I just don't think the transportation system, especially where I am, can continue functioning the exact same way with even even more people coming in. And I, I don't know, it, it just it might just take like a little bit more time, but I think a lot of people are going to get really kind of like annoyed with how things are working, um, and. And the fact that it just takes way too long to get to, to most places. But yeah, so, you know, now that we are kind of, you know, winding this down, I would want to, you know, turn it over to you um, and just have you talk about some of the, the biggest challenges that you've had in, in growing this. You know, how did you end up solving those and uh, what have been the, the biggest takeaways from 
from this? Like what, what can, what have you learned and what can you, you know, tell other people, other entrepreneurs out there or, or just anyone who, who wants to start something new and, and take on a, a, a big, uh, a seemingly uh, really large task. Yeah. I really look at this and say, um, patience is probably the biggest challenge that, uh, that I have. And I think whenever you start a company, your anticipation is it's going to be a hundred yard dash, but really it's closer to a marathon. And I think one of my favorite podcasts and probably yours as well is the, how I built this, uh, planet money uh, yeah, podcast it's a good where one. they talk to all these successful entrepreneurs. And really, I think the most consistent message is that these things take time and you're not going to solve the world or you're not going to, you know, create the next best technology overnight. I think that there's a lot of problems out there in the world and you can build the greatest technology, but adoption is not something that will happen immediately. So for us, you know, we really started in earnest and raised capital and hired our first employee in 2015, which seems like an eternity ago, but really it's four years. So, you know, many of these companies that are IPOing are eight, nine, 12, 15 years old, the reality is to grow and scale a company, uh, it takes time and I think it takes patience. So um, that's something that I've had to learn and it's definitely been a challenge to try to work through and, and understand it's a marathon. So pace yourself a little bit, don't burn out. Uh, definitely understand that it feels like a sprint at the beginning, but you know, get ready for, for a long haul. Gotcha. Great advice. You heard it here, guys. You know, get ready for the long haul. Stick with it. Um, and, you know, knowing that you guys are around, you know, five years old is, uh, I, I don't know if you've thought about this. You Well, you definitely have, but is is the plan to kind of like take this all the way, you know, possibly go public one day or, you know, are you exploring like, you know, possible like strategic acquisitions and things like that? Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty about the company is, you know, not, what, 98, 99% of startups are, are dead by their third year. Here we are in our fifth year, and we're doubling year over year. So um, there's really no end in sight. I see growth in our future. I only see positive, uh, you know, positive things coming down the pipeline. So for us, it's really simply about growing the company as fast as possible, try to work with some of these big companies that could help us grow even quicker, and then let the chips fall where they may. I don't think we have, um, you know, specific expectations about uh, an exit or haven't really given that much thought. We're just, you know, really happy with our current growth path, the team that we build, the technology stack that we work with, and the customers that we're serving, and just want to continue growing and sort of see where see where things fall in the next few years. Gotcha, gotcha, great. So. Uh, you know, that's, it's been awesome to, to talk with you, Ryan, you know, thanks again for, for coming on transportation is, is something that, you know, I'm just kind of like interested anyway. in, and I know a lot of people are as well, especially those that, that often just kind of like look around and during their commutes and, and see like all the problems with, with how things are going. So, um, you know, thanks again. And it was, it was great having you, you know, just before you go. If anyone wants to connect with you or, or find uh, Transit Screen, just let them know where the best place to do those things are. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. So uh, go to transitscreen.com, check out our website, uh, or if you have questions or just want some advice, hit me up, ryan at transitscreen.com. All right, perfect. Thank you so much, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good one. Bye. 
Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, go rate and subscribe to the podcast. Even share it with your friends if you found the lessons valuable. We do the show every week, so stay tuned for more episodes. And till next time.